How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. Sometimes the most meaningful advances in technology are about enabling simple things which can have big impacts for a patient's quality of life. That's what Dr. Jana Rieger has done. She's invented a smart-enabled health tech device called Mobility that helps patients with something most of us probably take for granted, the ability to swallow. Dr. Rieger is a professor in the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine and Director of Research at the Institute for Reconstructive Sciences in Medicine at the University of Alberta. She's also the CEO of True Angle Medical Technologies and a novelist. She joins me today on AI for Society Dialogues. Dr. Rieger, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Katrina. Well, since this podcast is part of the AI for Society Research Signature Area in partnership with Precision Health, I'm asking all our guests, what does artificial intelligence mean to you in the context of health and wellness? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to say about that. Um, I think really the key in your question is around Precision Health. And coming from the context that I know, thinking about remote monitoring and patient reported outcomes, all this kind of data that we're collecting, what it does is it really lets us provide targeted interventions. So for example, um, all this information is coming down from a patient and we have artificial intelligence, we have machines that create logic around it, and that can create a flag for a clinician and say, hey, this patient needs to be attended to for some reason. And it's, it's that kind of thing that really a clinician wouldn't have the time to put all of that together. So um, I think that's part of precision health. I think really, though, it, it takes it to a whole other level where not only can we have targeted assessments and targeted interventions based on what we're learning about patients from their data, but it also leads to more empathetic care because what it does is it gives the clinician the time to really um, focus on what's important to the patient that they might not have had before. And I don't know that we ever think about precision health in that way, but I think that's one of the benefits of precision health. And it applies to research as well. So what we learn from all of this technology is that instead of doing research only in the lab with really clean conditions that might not actually reflect what's really happening out in the world, we can now do research with real world evidence and use machines to help us figure out what we're getting from the real world. So to me, that means more precise outcomes and understanding of patients through that research process. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. And I, I love what you're saying about kind of bringing back that um, empathetic, the ability to have time to really kind of be empathetic and engage with patients. I think that's, that's such a lovely picture for the future of precision health. Um, and I want to talk more about that. But before we get there, I have to ask you a little bit about uh, 
your your novel because this is such an interesting you do so many things I mean I don't know where you find the time to be an entrepreneur <laughs> and a, a researcher and a novelist so um, if you could tell us a bit about uh, creative writing and and your novel uh, what's that all about yeah for sure and uh, just a note they're not all happening at the same time because there's <laughs> you know really um, as much as I love creative writing um, right now, the uh, the book that I was about halfway through is is just resting, and part of that is because of being an entrepreneur and the time that that takes. But um, really, what it comes down to, and and finding time for these things, it's it's all about the creative process and what drives joy in your life. And for me, um, being creative, whether that's writing a novel or whether that's building a business or whether that's building a research lab. There's, there's nothing different about that process. Um, so it's, it's about having passion for it. And, you know, when I was writing my novel, every moment I could steal away when I wasn't doing my, uh, you know, being a professor, doing my research, I was writing. And so maybe other people were watching TV or driving their bikes or whatever it might be. That's what I was driven to. And, um, you know, it was an eight-year process, so it wasn't something that I turned around in a year. It was really a, a long time, but there was this love for it that just kept me engaged in it. So I guess that's how I found the time for it. Thank you so much for explaining that, because when I was reading um, about you, I was thinking, is this person superhuman? I don't know how <laughs> she's doing all of this. So thank you for explaining how you accomplish that and how you kind of fit these things together. Um, just to kind of maybe follow up on that uh, just a bit, when you think about your research and you think about writing, um, you've talked a bit about the creative process. Are these creative processes similar? Are they complementary? Do these two things kind of feed um, off of each other in any way? Do you think about it that way? I definitely think there's similarities between being creative with writing a novel and being creative in a research sense. So, you know, for example, when I started writing um, the novel, it was not actually something I set out to do. I was, it, I would say I was inspired to do it. I, I had a character that started in my head. Um, I wasn't certain where the story was going. It happened in steps. Um, and so it was really this open road ahead of me. And when I think about research, um, you know, when we go into a, a particular research question, if we have, say, a directional hypothesis where we think, this is what I think is going to happen, it's to me, it's always been maybe a little bit of a bias. I like having the open road or the null hypothesis where it's like, you know what, I want to take my bias out and I want to really go down this road and explore what's going to happen in this research because you never know what you're going to find. It's always that unexpected thing. And I think it was... Um, similar in the writing process, um, that's how I went through it. I, I also think another similarity between the two is that oftentimes you run into a block, whether that's a writer's block about you don't know how you need to end the, the novel or um, in your research, you're really struggling with figuring something out and you can end up going in these loops that that don't take you anywhere. And one thing I learned from the writing process was to step back, go out for a walk, go out and do something, go explore a different path that you've never been on and take yourself away from that problem. And it's interesting when you 
open your mind and not fret or focus on that issue, what happens? And I think the same thing happens in research that sometimes, you know, some of the best ideas come when you've left the research bench and you're doing something else. Um, I know one of the the surgeons that I work with who is particularly uh, talented, um, he talked about coming up with a really novel surgical procedure that he dreamt about, right? So it's kind of like in those moments when you're released from the blocks that we have or the the fences that we put ourselves in with our traditional and conventional thinking. That makes so much sense. It's kind of like that classic example of like getting the idea in the shower kind of as I'm listening to you describe this. It makes so much sense. Um, yeah. I, I want to turn now, let's talk about your research. Uh, your area of expertise is in rehabilitation medicine, which is aimed at improving quality of life for people who have illnesses um, such as cancer, Parkinson's, stroke. And you focus on something very specific, uh, people who have difficulties chewing and swallowing. And I have to say that's something I hadn't really uh, considered before or, or thought a lot about. Um, can you tell us uh, how did you become interested in this really specific area and how do you work with patients in this area? It came through my work at the Institute for Reconstructive Sciences and Medicine. Uh, when I started my professional career at the University of Alberta, I was fortunate to have a position there. I was a clinician scientist, so I was seeing patients clinically, but Everything I was doing in the clinic was based around a research question that I had. And a large proportion of the patients that I saw had what's called head and neck cancer. So that means they had a tumor somewhere either in their mouth, their throat, their jaws. And one of the things that happens as soon as there's an intervention to get rid of that cancer is now you've affected the muscle structure or the nervous structure that relates to swallowing. So as I watched patients go through their treatment and get cured from the cancer, they were left with these functional consequences. And one was this impairment in swallowing that really devastated their lives. And again, you don't think about eating and swallowing in that respect, but it's something we do every day. It's hugely social. Um, think about when you go to meet a friend, it's usually, let's have a coffee, let's have a drink, let's have some snacks. Um, there's always food involved. Food means comfort, food means joy. So there's all these things around food that all of a sudden are taken away from these patients. And either they can't eat by mouth, or they have to eat food that's been thrown into a blender and doesn't look great. Or every time they eat, they're really terrified because they're, they cough and choke on the food and there's a threat to their airway. So it became this really big issue for patients. And so when I started my career, I really was looking at different interventions to how could we make this better? How could we prevent this from happening? So we looked at surgical interventions. We looked at prosthetic interventions. We looked at pharmaceutical interventions. And kind of at the end of that all, um, when we came to a place where we felt we were doing the best in all those areas, there were still some patients who had this problem. And so what I knew was that there was a behavioral intervention. So it's an exercise intervention, has to be intensive, um, that could help. And that could get patients off their tubes, could prevent food from going down the wrong way, et cetera. It meant coming into the clinic every single day. So when I started a clinical trial to do this intensive therapy, 
um, to get hooked up to this machine. That's key because we're showing them what their muscles are doing. Because again, like you said, we, we don't really think about swallowing. It's just something we do. So when you have to teach swallowing, it's not intuitive. So having this feedback that people could see about what their muscles were doing was really, really important for the training. The problem was nobody wanted to come in every single day for however many weeks on end. And I ended up canceling the trial because I simply couldn't get the commitment I needed. So then enter some young energetic folks in my lab, um, Gabby Constantinescu and Dylan Scott, who are co-founders in Triangle. And the question arose, can we make this smaller? Can we do something that a patient could take this home? And that started the whole thing. That is amazing. And um, in terms of making this smaller, um, this being a podcast, our listeners can't see this, but I've seen this device and it's super small. It fits into your pocket. So I would say you've more than achieved that goal. And I'm kind of curious now because we are talking about AI, we're talking about technology. So you could tell us a bit more about the process of how you solved that big problem uh, with your small device and and what was the role that AI played um, in, in getting there? Yeah, so that's, a, that's a, again, a continual process for us. Um, once we realized that we really could make this very small, we could take advantage of um, microelectronics, we could take advantage of the power of phones, we could create a software that runs in the background, and we could get this into the homes of patients. What we realized is we are now taking the clinician out of the mix. And what used to happen is that the patient would come to the clinic, they'd get hooked up to this big machine, and the clinician would sit beside them and watch what they're doing with them and say, oh, good swallow, good swallow, you know, kind of like a coach. (laughs) And what we realized is that we needed to have a machine essentially determine if they hit a target and was it a good swallow. So that was our first venture into creating an algorithm. And it really was inspired when um, we had gone to a conference in New York early on in the process. And there were some researchers there who were looking at monitoring sleep apnea through a, a night of sleep and developing algorithms that could detect periods of apnea so that a clinician wouldn't have to look through eight hours of data. And I started thinking, that is what we need to do as well, because we need a machine to be able to look through this continuous muscle contraction data that comes into the the software and say, that was a swallow, that you hit your target. So that's where the evolution of that started. The first algorithm that we had was fairly simple, where it was more of a, a statistical, based on statistical models, We have, and this is where the continual process comes in, we're now working on um, more advanced algorithms around that that are using um, principles of uh, machine learning. That's amazing. It's so funny when you bring awareness to a process, because as you're talking about swallowing, I'm like now hyper aware of like, every time I'm swallowing as we're talking, it's so funny how that happens. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Uh. So I understand that. Um, so it sounds like uh, you've, you've kind of invented this algorithmic swallowing coach, uh, if you will, which sounds amazing. Um, I understand that there's a gamification aspect to it as well. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? For sure. So when we first started, we were really uh, hot on the trail of gamification, um, especially Gabby, um, who was doing her PhD research at the time. And 
you know, I had this young team around me. They loved playing, you know, they're into the computer game stuff. I have to admit, me, not so much. Um, so I was letting them run with this stuff. And, and everything we did, we were very intentional about always bringing the patient into the mix and understanding what did they want. So uh, the research team came up with different ideation around what the gamification could be like and six different concepts. And then we had, um, we ran some studies where we asked patients about what they wanted. We did some design sprints. And what we learned from patients was that for them, the whole concept of making some little guy avatar jump over something to get rewarded with points was an overload for them. They just wanted something super simple. And their reasoning was, I have to think so hard about just swallowing. I have to put all my cognitive energy into that. I just want to, I just want a line that shows me what I'm doing. And for us, it was like, oh, okay. And I think it was one of the, you know, the areas where, where it was really evident that bringing the user into the context was important. Now, I believe that this will continue to grow and change as we bring different users um, younger users, older users, they may have different ideas about that. And again, that's part of that creative process around the whole idea of gamification and and what that really means for the the experience for patients. And, you know, it's really about gamification is about how do we motivate and engage people? Um, and so is that through the action that they're doing? Um, is it through um, looking at uh, what's important to them and and why they would continue to be engaged with a simple interface through rewards, for example. Um, so we've heard that's important. So there's different ways that we can look at how um, we create that engagement with patients. And part of that might be with gamification and it might be with some other aspects of the system. Yeah, it's really interesting um, hearing you explain that and, and really kind of highlights the importance of having patients involved in the process, uh, because at first blush, it seems, well, that sounds very cool. Uh, but when you explain how um, having something perhaps simpler, that's not so high uh, anxiety producing as having to win a game and also uh, do your rehabilitative um, med medical practice, it sort of makes sense that maybe, maybe that's not the best way to go, or maybe that's not the best way to go for, for all people. So that's right. very interesting. Um, well, let's turn now and talk a bit about entrepreneurship and True Angle Medical Technologies specifically. So this is a company that you um, founded. You've mentioned uh, Dylan, Dylan and Gabby already, and the, the three of you are, are founders of this organization. Can you tell us a bit about that company um, and a little bit more about Mobility, the device that you invented? Initially, as I think the listeners know, um, but if not, I'll, I'll just clarify, we were developing the technology initially at the University of Alberta. So it was very much a research-based re research development. We were fortunate to have funding from the Alberta Cancer Foundation, um, just over $2 million across five years. We were able to put that team together that we needed and develop these things that we did. Um, but the road signs became pretty clear to me around 2017. Um, and that was just, we were just going past the halfway point in that grant where I realized that there were going to be things that if we really wanted to get this out of the lab and into the hands of patients, that we were going to have to jump into the world of commercialization. 
And the funding, any research funding really is not, they won't support some of those business uh, things that you need to do, for example, to defend a patent. So um, those types of things pushed us into this other world and slowly away from the research happening in the lab and over into the research happening in the company. So that was the the beginning of True Angle, um, the development of the mobility. So there is there is the device. It's um, it sits under the chin. It measures what your muscles are doing. Um, it's gathering every single muscle contraction. We're hosting that in a data warehouse and keeping that. So I think now we um, at last count we just crossed over the thirty thousand uh, mark of of separate swallows. So we have muscle activation data for all of that. And um, so the system, even though there's a device, it really is a system that works together. And what's really powerful in all of it is the software that we have developed and the ways that we continue to develop the software so that we learn more about the people who are using it um, and so that we can make it even more targeted for their needs, their particular needs. Wow, so many follow-up questions to ask you. Um, I'll start with the team. So um, we've talked a bit about your background, um, and I believe that this is an interdisciplinary team. Can you tell us a bit about the, the backgrounds of the other people on your team, Dylan, Gabby, and maybe any other people who were part of forming that team? Yeah, for sure. So when we were first started at the university, uh, Gabby's background is a, as a speech-language pathologist. Um, as I mentioned, she did her PhD work, and it was heavily focused on the mobility. Um, Dylan is an engineer, so he's a mechanical engineer by training and biomedical specialty. Uh, And at the time when we were developing this, the team that we had around us included industrial designers, so um, lots of students plus one um, main team member who led those students. Um, and that was really important for the whole user base, understanding the user base. We had computer scientists. We had um, material scientists, which led to a, an off-branch uh, technology that's um, still in R&D. I'm trying to think who else. Our, our patients and clinicians, they were team members because they really they came in and fed us information about what we were doing. Um, really to bring, to be able to bring all of this together, um, it, you do need different minds. You need that diversity of thinking around the table. Yeah. And that's one of the themes we've really been exploring on the podcast this season is um, the intersection between computer science and medicine, but also all the other disciplines that can come around that and really kind of round out these interdisciplinary teams that come up with really interesting innovations as a result. Yeah, for sure. And and if I could just mention, because I think it's really important, the other important part of the team, now that we're in the commercialization um, part of this, are our sales and marketing. And you might not, it might not seem immediately obvious, but they are the folks who are hearing from the users first. And so they're bringing all that information back now to our product team and working hand in hand with the product team to make iterations in the product. And then we're testing those iterations to see, is this really what our customer wants? So we're constantly testing these hypotheses, um, but without that, that feedback from sales and marketing, it would be super, super hard to do. 
so important. My background is actually marketing, so I, I completely agree with you and, and relate to that point. Um, I also want to ask you, you mentioned that you had kind of this uh, epiphany or maybe turning point in 2017. You really saw the need for this to live beyond a research project and, and really kind of move into that area of commercialization. And it sounds like there were some practical reasons for that, like uh, defending a patent and so forth. But what, what were those other signs that you were seeing? Why did you think that? And what was it that kind of drove you in that direction? <laughs> I, you know, when I think about it, it was kind of so I was at this space where I'd been in academia for a while I felt like I knew what I was doing there you know I, I'd figured out the granting process I had figured out networking um, I had international colleagues like I, I had created a successful lab and so I was very comfortable and I could feel this like this invisible nudging constantly like you're gonna have to do this you're gonna have to do this and and it was kind of like oh I'm not i I love business. Like that was something since I was a kid, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. And so that was always in my blood. Um, and, but yet I had never really ventured full feet, both feet into that. Um, so I, I was feeling this nudge. I thought, okay, um, I'll try to bring someone in who could lead the business of this. And, and, you know, what I realized pretty quickly was we were the people as in the, the, co-founders, we were the ones who really knew this. Um, I had a deep down desire to get into entrepreneurship. I just needed that push and I needed some mentoring. And once those things came together, um, our, the first mentoring that we had around this was with the Creative Destruction Lab, um, which is an accelerator out of the University of Calgary, but it's across Canada and internationally. And it's one of the highest regarded acceler business accelerators. And the mentoring that we got there was really pivotal. And it gave me a footing where I felt like, okay, I, I don't know everything, but I know now that I can find the resources to figure out what I need to do. And, and I had had that experience when I wrote my novel as well. You know, at that point, it was like, ooh, I don't know if I have the right to write this novel because I'm not a, a fictional writer. I'm not a creative writer. I'm an academic scientific writer. But I found the right networks and I realized that I could be mentored to do something that I really loved. And it's been the same thing with True Angle. I've been mentored to do something now that I absolutely love because it has this um, creative aspect to building this business. As you're describing this, I'm thinking that you were both pushed and called at the same time to <laughs> entrepreneurship. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I'm kind of curious about, you know, thinking about your own journey and, and maybe thinking about um, other people who are in a similar situation, they have technology uh, in a lab scenario. Do you think entrepreneurship is necessary for a disruptive technology um, and a medical advance to kind of get beyond the lab and get to patients? Is that a necessary process? I think it really depends. It depends on what you've developed. So there, for example, if you've developed either a technology or say a pharmaceutical or, or whatever it might be that that fits really well into a larger company's business lines, that they could just say, hey, we want to license this technology or we want to purchase this technology and, and it just fits, then I think as, a, as an inventor in a lab, you may not have to take that step into entrepreneurship. When we first were looking, we were working with at the time Tech Edmonton, and we were looking at that model of like, could we interest a larger industry partner in just licensing this? And 
that seemed like the easy way out um, in in many respects, and it because it just took away all this other stuff that you would have to go down that path and learn. But you know, there wasn't that fit for us. There just wasn't that company where they would have the passion around this, where they would understand the market around this the same way that we did. And so it was just, again, a matter of saying, trying that, testing the waters there and saying, that's not for us, that's not going to work. So we want to do this. Is entrepreneurship for everybody? I don't think so. But I think if you have even the inkling that you this is something you'd like to do, I it is one of the most rewarding things. And I think the thing about our context in Alberta is that we have such great systems that are set up around us um, to help. And they're getting, they continue to grow. Um, we have the IMEAG that just started at the university over the past year. We have so uh, venture mentoring services at the University of Alberta. So there are a lot of resources. And even for young, young entrepreneurs who are just starting their um, academic journey in their undergrad, there are resources for them as well if they have some of these cool ideas um, so that they learn about the business side of things early on. Yeah, it's fantastic when you think about, you've named so many of them, all the resources that are available now uh, for for academics and, um, and those who want to pursue that entrepreneurial journey. Um, I want to maybe take just a, a slight turn and talk a bit more about uh, the, the device itself. And as you've mentioned, mm -hmm. it's not just a device. There is this whole system at play here. Um, and I don't want you to, uh, to feel like you need to divulge any trade secrets here. But um, it would be wonderful just to kind of hear a bit more about how the technology actually works. And maybe um, if you could talk about um, even the role of machine learning and in, in processing mm -hmm. some of this data. And what does it look like when someone's using this device? How does it work? Again, not being an expert in machine learning, so I'm, I'm just going to give you the basics of what I understand. Um, we have the, the information that we're gathering from patients right now. Our primary focus is around this muscle contraction information that we're getting. And the machine learning that we're working with really is what is called supervised learning. So um, we, we have to teach it. So we have um, we've run um, training data. We've collected training data where we say, this is a swallow. This is uh, a certain other muscle movement. This is a certain exercise type. Um, and we've classified those and then um, have looked at training the algorithm on, okay, this is what to expect. Where we're working right now, as I said, we prior to this, we were using really what was a, a statistical model for that machine learning. We're looking at an advanced way to classify those through machine learning. And um, we have to look at it at, at a model that would work for this continuous data that's coming in because it's it's not like a one and done. It's it's there's a, a whole waveform that comes in. It's full of frequencies. So the muscle uh, waveform that we get has frequencies in it. There's, you know, 10,000 different points in there that have to be analyzed as it's coming in. So, um, so we're looking at things like Markov models. And I would relate it, you know, when I was doing my dissertation, my PhD, way back when, I was looking at speech recognition systems. And it was at that time, the recognition systems were what we called discrete speech recognition. So it wasn't like Siri today, where you can just say, hey, Siri, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
you had to talk to them like this and you had to put a space in between each word so that the speech recognition had a chance. Um, and, you know, at, at that time, um, and each time you say a word, it's never the same. Each time you say the letter S, it's never the same as the next time. And so it's the same kind of thing with swallowing. Um, you swallow once now, you think about it. The next time you swallow, it might be a little different because now you're thinking about it <laughs> or you're, you're, you've put a, a different type of food in your mouth that's a little harder to swallow or easier to swallow. So no two swallows are alike. So we have a very complicated data set. We have a large data set, but it's a complicated data set where, um, you know, we really have to look at how we can um, use a machine learning model to accurately classify what patients are doing so that they get rewarded when they should and so that we don't create a frustration because um, they aren't getting rewarded when they should or they are getting rewarded when they shouldn't uh, type of thing. Yeah. You know, I am not going to think about swallowing the same way ever again <laughs> <laughs> after having had this, this conversation with you. Um, maybe just to turn and talk a bit about the business side of things a little bit. So you, you've mm. talked about uh, the, the process of taking a, a very large machine. It was um, cumbersome for patients to come in and, and actually be hooked up to this machine and kind of taking that technology and, and making it uh, usable for people at home. Um, from a cost perspective, um, I, I'm imagining there's got to be some either cost savings or uh, streamlining uh, that, that takes place in the healthcare system. Are you able to, to quantify that um, in any way or what does that look like in terms of affordability? Yeah, we're definitely starting to look at all of those aspects. So just as a comparison, um, the machine that we had in our clinic and lab that we were using to hook patients up to was about $30,000 to purchase. Um, similar type of machines now in clinic machines tend to, um, some run up around $20,000 US dollars, some run around five to 10,000. So it's, it's in the thousands. The thing is, they treat one patient at a time. And there are costs with those patients coming, having to take time off work, having to come to a hospital, park, pay for gas, pay for parking on a daily basis. So there's, there's a huge cost to the patient um, for having to either come in or bring their loved one in for this treatment. On the other hand, by reducing, um, you know, the size of this device, taking advantage of current manufacturing processes that we can take advantage of, we're able to offer this as a system that patients can have in their home. And right now, you know, we have a, it, it's in the US, um, we have a bundle where you get your software and your device together. Uh, for six months, it's um, a $400 investment. So it is, when you think about the, of how much you would spend, you know, probably close to $5,000 a patient for a patient just simply to have a, a short six-week band of therapy by the time you count the, the lost time at work and all that, there's a, you know, there's a big trade-off. And, and some of the other monetary trade-offs around this are that we know that every time a patient gets an aspiration pneumonia, which means food or water or drink or saliva has gone down the wrong way into the lungs, 
and it creates a pneumonia that comes on quick and is very serious, and they end up in the hospital for it. It's a $30,000 fix for one event of this. Not only that, there's a 30% chance of dying from this when it happens, when you go into hospital with it. So it's really a serious consequence. If we can get patients onto this treatment, what we know from foundational research, and when I say foundational, some of the original research that was done in the clinic by other groups, what they showed was that they can prevent aspiration in up to 40% of patients. The other thing is we can get people off of their feeding tubes. So by that, the feeding tube, it means it's a tube that's going into your stomach. The food is going directly in there. It's bypassing your mouth. Um, But they're also very costly. So between the surgery for them, buying the food products for them, and the complications of them, because there's quite a few medical complications that can happen, um, that's about a $40,000 a year cost per patient. So in the U.S. alone, we've estimated that some of the costs for these consequences are around $17 billion. So it's a ton of money that systems are spending on these uh, consequences. Here in Alberta, when we looked at just two groups of patients that have this problem, so there are quite a few patients. There's um, not only had that cancer, but stroke, Parkinson's, other degenerative problems, um, people who've had brain injuries. There's a whole host of unknown causes. Um, when we look at just two of those groups, so head and neck cancer and stroke, we know that, um, and it's probably an underestimate because of the way that things are coded in our health system and some, you know, it's not always consistent. Um, that's another key for data and AI is that in the healthcare system, we have to get a whole lot more serious and consistent about how we're coding health states. But anyhow, besides that, we know that per year, the Alberta system is spending two and a half million dollars on on just aspiration pneumonia in just those two groups. So if we think about expanding that to all the other groups and we think about also then the cost of having a tube in your stomach, it becomes exponential. We, we often look at cost benefit in the health system around, you know, uh, how much money are we saving? How much more quickly are we getting someone through the healthcare system? And there's this whole notion in the U.S. right now around value-based care. It's been uh, developing over the past decade. And what it really takes into account is that we have to take the patient's perspective into the care that they received as understanding what is the value. So very often the healthcare systems go to the lowest common denominator, which is the cost. So we get care that's cheaper and we get it more quickly. But what if it's crappy care? We're just getting crappy care more quickly at a lower cost. So it beca- it comes down to, are we making patients' lives better? And how are we measuring that? And that has to come into all these Uh, equations for health outcomes and the benefit of a technology, the benefit of AI, all that has to be taken into account. Yeah, those are fantastic points. And, you know, kind of keeping in mind the bigger picture of not just driving down a financial cost, but also preventing a um, an adverse health event, um, and, and ultimately just making care better. Um, ideally, also more affordable, but also better, which it sounds like you found a, a good combination of those two factors um, when it comes to your particular work. Um, 
just as we kind of draw to a close here, I want to go back full circle and and uh, we we you know touched on this idea of precision health and AI. That's where we started out, um, and I want to go back to that kind of thinking about your own experiences in enabling technology in the course of your work. What do you think the future holds for? Uh, for AI and health kind of coming together? Do you see opportunities for other people, perhaps in, in slightly different domains, to, to apply some of the things that you've learned through your journey and, uh, and to kind of advance some uh, technology and health in that way? Or how do you see these two things intersecting? What does that look like for you? I think that there's um, this whole notion of health at home is going to be essential. Um, it, there's definitely a drive towards that. Everything that's happened over the past year and a half um, has really showed us that we need new new models around this. Um, so I think that there are lots of rehab type of interventions that could be done in that respect. I also think that there are a lot of diagnostics that could be done at home, um, and it may be not in the way we expect. You know, there's um, there are uh, there's the story of um, using heart measurements and uh, other physiological measurements related to the heart to understand what is happening with the potassium in the body. Um, so this was a, a story that came out of the company called AliveCore. Um, and uh, so I think that there are definitely um, other other areas where this will be really, really important. Um, I, I do think that all of this is going to require changes, however. So when we think about AI, ML, the, the things that are going to happen from there, I think we really need to consider how we're training clinicians. Because again, um, a clinician myself, I can say this, we often go to that, the thing that is easiest, that makes us feel like we're doing something to help a patient. Uh, like I had mentioned to you prior, when we were doing therapy, I was sitting beside the patient saying, hey, good swallow, good swallow, good swallow for half an hour. And somehow yet inside, it was like, I'm doing something to make that patient feel better. But is that the best use of my time as a clinician? And I think that what the potential for ML is that it's going to take away some of what I would call, um, maybe this isn't the right word, but kind of the drudgery um, of being a clinician. It, it's going to make those parts a whole lot more easy. But that means that it opens up time for clinicians to delve into other things. So, you know, for example, I was listening to a podcast um, with a woman who had a swallowing disorder and what she wished a clinician had asked her about. Um, so, for example, um, you know, if we understood about a, a, a patient, what was the hardest thing that they encountered around having dysphagia in the past two weeks? And we hear that from them. And then if we can help them figure that out, um, instead of just being this technician at the side who's putting them through something, it, it's like, there, to explain it well, there was an article that came out um, uh, that Deloitte published where they said um, they were talking about technology and what was important to the consumers of technology, health technology. So access is really important. But next to access was empathy. So again, it comes down to feeling like there's still this clinician connection. And I'm not sure that clinicians always feel comfortable 
stepping over into that more that that um, emotional quotient side of interacting with a patient and not being you know if a patient tells you that they're experiencing some difficulty and they're very sad about it it's a whole different story than if they tell you I have heartburn and as a clinician you say oh take this you know that's a very simple transactional interaction whereas if they're telling you about a life event you need to understand how to work with them. And so I think we have to train our clinicians um, in a very different way and um, not so much rote learning, but maybe a bit more on that EQ side of learning um, where machines aren't going to be able to do that for us. They're going to be able to do a lot of the rote stuff. We're not going to have to worry about that or do it anymore. Very interesting. Do you, do you see evidence of that happening uh, in in uh, in curriculum and in, in changes to the approaches, or is this just this is your is this your wish list? This is a wish list. I, you know, um, I I don't see that. I haven't seen it yet. But I think we are we are going to have to teach clinicians how to use technology as a partner in care, and then what what they need to do on the other side of that and get back to this, like I said, this EQ side of interacting with patients where a machine isn't going to be able to do it. Yeah, yeah, that is fascinating. Okay, our last question before we wrap up. Um, I'm just wondering uh, what's next for you, whether that's uh, new things in the entrepreneurial journey, uh, new research that you're undertaking, maybe a new novel that you're thinking about writing, what are, what's on your horizon? Well, like I said, the novel's resting. Um, it's that'll have to wait for a few more years, I, I believe. Um, definitely, within the company, there are lots of things that we're working on right now. Um, we're looking at our software, especially. Um, we're looking at partnering with industry partners who also have very powerful softwares, and looking at how we can take advantage of the information coming from both of those probably apply machine learning to it. It might be unsupervised learning where it's like, okay, help us figure out what all this means. Um, uh, so that's on the horizon. And we also, as I had mentioned, um, we had some technologies that spun out of the work on making the mobility as small and, and portable as possible. And that work happened with some of the material scientists at the U of A. And so we're looking at, um, you know, stretchable, flexible electronics and um, how we can monitor different body systems with that. So that's a part of our R&D work right now. Um, we're, we're not at the point that that's ready for commercialization, but it's, we're, we're on the bench with that. Well, that's fantastic. All very exciting stuff. Um, Dr. Rieger, I just want to say thank you so much for being here today on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Katrina. I really appreciate your time and your questions. They were a lot of fun. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health, two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, 
and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Callie Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca.